This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been a disappointing year so far for bike sales, but there is a bright spot. Sales of e-bikes are up 80 percent over last year, and Colorado has a new law to regulate them. After all, they can go faster than many cyclists pedal. I wanted to try one, so I put out a call on Facebook, and this guy answered. My name is Todd Wonskowski. He lives in Denver and met me at Cheeseman Park early one morning before work. Now, Todd, you have uh, perhaps unwisely allowed me to try riding your bike. How much of a speed boost am I expecting? Well, you can have a little speed boost or you can actually push the red button and it's like a rocket ship. When Skoski's bike is really big, he commutes to work with it, lugs all his stuff, and uses it to drop his kids off at daycare. Oh, you have a whole display here. Yes. It shows your how much power you have in the battery and then a couple different meters. He says he charges the bike overnight. Now, when I get on, he tells me it won't just take off on its own. I'll pedal first and it'll help. Okay, here we go. You'll hear the microphone bouncing around the front basket. Oh, that's so nice. I didn't have that big struggle at the beginning where you almost have to stand up, you know, and, and power your way into a bike. It just zoomed for me. Now I'm headed downhill and I've really got power. You've got to get used to um, shifting gears a lot faster though. The other thing is you don't hear the electric assist. It makes virtually no sound. It doesn't sound much different from my own bike. I circled back, and I'm curious, why an e-bike? The advantage of the electric bike is, as I like to say, it cuts the edge off a lot of different things when you're commuting. Uh, When you're in a hurry, you can move faster. When there's weather approaching, you can also move faster. And then also with the kids, in my situation, they pick up a pound or two, you know, every month or so. So the weight's a big factor as a part of it as well. Uh, And then finally, I think... Going to meetings and things like that during the day, it's very helpful that you basically don't have to sweat. Todd Winskowski says the e-bike helps keep him out of his car because it makes a two-wheeled commute more doable. But e-bikes occupy an odd place, not pure bicycle, not scooter or motorcycle, and communities are trying to figure out how to treat them. With me now from Boulder is Alex Logeman, director of state and local policy at the advocacy group People for Bikes. And welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Besides not arriving sweaty to work, uh, what are other reasons people opt for e-bikes over traditional ones? You know, I think it keeps a lot of people riding longer than they might otherwise do. If you look at some of the demographics for e-bike purchasers, you see a lot of folks who are a little bit older and were probably bike riders historically. And the e-bike is really just enabling them to, you know, continue engaging in that activity, staying fit, staying healthy, uh, staying on their bike to do a lot of the things they've always enjoyed to do. And so it's really a way to keep those people riding longer. And I think, you know, much like the experience you had yourself, get new people into the sport in a, in a much less intimidating fashion. They, they hop on, there's um, a little fewer obstacles in terms of getting the bike moving and, and feeling the sweat. And so they, they just are instantly having a good time. Ah, so this might get new people into cycling and keep those who are already in cycling, perhaps in it a bit longer in, into their lives. Uh, so the e-bike that I tried was a pedal assist bike. 
it gave me a boost as I did the work. I understand that others have throttles and can keep going even if I don't pedal. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. There's there's really two types uh, of motor power on, on products in the marketplace today. One is that pedal assist style bike, like you said, and there are two speed varieties within that category, a lower speed and a higher speed. And then there is also sort of one style of throttle assist bike in which you can either turn a throttle or, or push a button and the, the bike will propel itself without you adding your human power. And why is that third type not a moped or a scooter? You know, it, it's it's something that's authorized under federal law, actually, to be regulated as a bicycle. Under our consumer product safety laws, which regulate what the bicycles look like when they're on the showroom floor of a bike shop, it, it, it does not distinguish between the pedal assist style bikes and the throttle assist style bikes. So you can create uh, a, a bike-like product like that with a throttle um, under the federal law and, and you know, uh, equip it the same way. Huh. And these are electric motors on all of them? That's correct. Yeah. So this new state law, which went into effect this month, places electric bike into these three categories you mentioned. And and this depends in large part on, on their speeds and, again, whether they can go on their own. The bikes have to be clearly labeled. Uh, how, how fast can e-bikes go? You know, there's two speed uh, motor-powered speed limitations that are on the different style bikes. For the lower speed pedal assist style bikes and the throttle-powered bikes, they can go up to 20 miles per hour. Mm. The higher speed pedal assist style bikes can go up to 28 miles per hour. But again, those are the maximum speeds that the the bikes are capable of. When you see people riding them, they're not necessarily going to be pushing, you know, redlining it the entire time. They're often riding it uh, at more traditional, you know, 15, 16, 17 miles per hour that you would associate with a typical bike. But presumably it's the potential speed here that has some communities concerned about where e-bikes should go. And I'll point out, you could be on a traditional bike heading downhill and going those kinds of speeds as well. Absolutely. And it's a a very legitimate concern to have, especially when you're thinking about how to integrate e-bikes into, you know, bicycle and pedestrian facilities. And, you know, that's why the new state law in particular with the higher speed bikes, what we call the class three bikes that go up to 28 miles per hour, you know, they aren't going to have any kind of access to those facilities absent local communities taking additional action. Okay, so those aren't allowed, what you're saying is, um, on your traditional, what, bike paths? Yeah, bike paths, greenways, that sort of facility. Okay, and again, those are the bikes with the throttle. Uh, Well, there's been a hodgepodge of restrictions on electric bikes across Colorado uh, because local governments can set their own rules about allowing or prohibiting them. This law doesn't really change that. So should e-bike users expect continued confusion when riding on bike paths that go through different jurisdictions? Yeah, you know, it still does authorize local governments to put their own set of rules in place on e-bikes. And, you know, I think that's really important just because bicycle facilities can vary so much from community to community and and different places are going to have to decide uh, where e-bikes make sense within their system. So there will be a little bit of that. I think the big thing will be over time as people just become more familiar with e-bikes. A lot of those, you know, distinctions will will just sort of wear away as as the e-bike becomes a more familiar tool to everybody. And it becomes, I think, just sort of a a more accepted part of the bike riding sphere. And we're really only in in our infancy in the United States in that respect. You think there's some fear here? 
I think it's just unfamiliarity and people aren't sure about whether e-bike riders might have, uh, you know, different characteristics of riding or anything like that that cause safety concerns. I think at the end of the day, what we'll see, though, is is just people realize for the most part, they, they act just like regular bikes and at the, we'll see them treated like that increasingly. But again, the bikes with throttles that go at the top speeds uh, will have to stay on the roads, correct? No, the, the lower speed throttle-powered bikes that go up to 20 miles per hour can be ridden on a, on a you know, bicycle path or a greenway. The primary differentiation within the law in terms of uh, creating blanket rules is the speed of the bike, not whether it's not throttle whether or it's throttle. Got it. Okay, Correct. so it's the fastest one. Um, it, it occurs to me that there are some potentially gray areas here, right? I mean, like, do you have to have insurance and uh, a license? And, and I wonder if some of those issues have been wrestled with. They have actually, not in every state in the country, of course, but in Colorado, e-bikes are actually excluded from the definition of motor vehicle within our traffic laws that regulates those sorts of issues. So an e-bike rider shouldn't need to carry an operator's license, um, register their vehicle, uh, obtain insurance, any of those typical motor vehicle requirements. Okay. Well, give us examples of how different communities across the state are treating e-bikes differently. As we said, you might be on a long ride and go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and run into different rules. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Boulder, uh, where I am right now, is actually sort of one of the local leaders in in trying to tackle the problem of e-bikes several years ago in terms of integrating them into the path system. And so what they've actually done is create a very detailed map of their community um, that specifies where e-bikes can ridden on all the sorts of different trails that that are within the city. In contrast, Jefferson County, uh, examined examined the law that was recently gone into effect, and they decided that they would allow Class 1 e-bikes on all of their bike paths and greenways. So some are choosing to sort of analyze each piece of infrastructure where they think e-bikes are appropriate and they don't differentiate between the three classes. Other communities might be looking at the three classes of e-bikes and saying, okay, amongst these three, which ones do we sort of want to pick and choose for access on our system? Any other communities you'd point to that have taken more draconian measures? Yeah, you know, a few. What's really interesting is what's happening in some of the mountain communities. Because some bike paths up there run through federal land in addition to either municipal or county land, yeah. e-bikes have a separate set of regulations on federal land. And so they're consider- they're still considered motorized vehicles on, on most federal land management agencies. Um, to get consistency within their sort of network there in, in this sort of odd atmosphere of having multiple land management agencies, um, some communities have banned them outright in order, in order to have consistency um, for the whole stretch of bike path, which might stretch across a few different areas. Yeah. And those probably touch uh, e-mountain bikes as well, because those exist. Yeah. And, you know, uh, for the, the e-mountain bike thing is a, is a really interesting question, and we'll keep seeing that more and more often. You know, the, the on-road laws don't, don't regulate that. And, you know, individual county open space entities and our federal land management agencies that sort of operate within that space, you know, generally are considering those to be a motorized operation currently. And that's an area of continuing study for them. Oh. So this, uh, yes, it sounds like will continue to form as communities get their heads around these bikes. Um, do you think that this could make... Uh, the tension that exists between cyclists and motorists 
And I realize that those are often sometimes the same people, right? You can sometimes be on your bike and sometimes be in your car. Um, those aren't necessarily two distinct groups. But do you think that this could add to any tensions on the road? You know, I I don't really think so. I think one of the things that we see, I think there's two really good points here. One, most people when you're riding an e-bike can't actually tell whether you're on an electric bike or a a regular bike. So I think a a motorist isn't really going to be able to differentiate between the the device in a very meaningful way when they're when they're going by so you know you'll just you'll just appear to be a bike rider if you're out there on an e-bike i think on the other hand one of the things we see in terms of studying safety is that the more people we get out on the roadway the the, sorry the more people we get riding bikes out on the roadway uh, the more familiarity there is between motor vehicle operators and and riders of bikes and it actually leads to a safer environment um you know cars are expecting a bike to be there and they're you know predicting that sort of behavior so there's potential to actually i think improve safety if e-bikes were able to generate more participation it reaches something of a critical mass and you think uh, as you said earlier that e-bikes will result in in more folks uh considering a commute on a bike alex thanks so much for walking us through this Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Alex Logeman is Director of State and Local Policy for People for Bikes in Boulder. And we talked about a new law in Colorado to regulate e-bikes. You can see a video from my test ride in Denver's Cheeseman Park at cprnews.org. Life can be tough for farmers and ranchers these days. They're subject to increasing global competition, to the whims of weather, and to the high costs of doing business. Colorado's Agriculture Commissioner, Don Brown, is a farmer, and he has talked to friends who get depressed. He's come up with a new program to help farmers in crisis. And Don, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation this morning. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'll say that farming has never been an easy business, but give me an example of a conversation you've had recently with somebody in your hometown, Yuma County, uh, that led you to believe this program is important. Well, I think there's two or three things I'd like to talk about. One of them is the fact that I started farming in the late 70s, Mm. my wife and I, right before the ag crisis hit. So I've gone through this once personally as a young person. And I guess I recognized maybe what I saw the signs of uh, we're headed maybe that direction again. And particularly this uh, winter, uh, we had several neighbors or acquaintances call us and simply wanting to maybe sell us their land because they were under a lot of pressure uh, from the banks. And that told me that we're headed down a road that we don't like. And in consequently, emotionally and mentally, that's very, very struggling and uh, difficult for a farmer and a rancher. Very difficult. So this Extremely is difficult. deja vu for you in some regards. To a degree. And I want to get out in front of this thing. I think it's important that we don't come in the backside. We need to be proactive. Did, we need to provide help for those who... Uh, think they might need somebody to talk to. Did those folks who approached you wind up selling their farm? Um, some of them did, yes. I mean, you know, that's kind of where you go when the bank says uh, you need to restructure. They restructure. And typically that's the answer. And you're selling the factory your livelihood when you do that. So this new program is actually based on something the state's had for some time, a telephone crisis yes. line. Uh, The pitch on your website reads, the agricultural economic crisis is real. The resulting stress is real. Let's talk about it. What will you do differently to cater to farmers and ranchers? 
well, we're, we're doing an orientation program for those who run the Colorado. We speak a language that speaks is a little different. As you and radio talk, speak a different language. Lawyers speak a different language. We in agricultural speak a different language. So and our job is to operators. try to teach them the language mm-hmm. uh, yeah, to be able to communicate. What, is, what does who, that sound like? How is it different? Well, uh, okay, so let's talk about Pioneer 1157 corn uh, with the GDUs of so-and-so-and-so. Uh, did you know what I'm talking about? Probably not. Uh, we, we talk about the weather. We talk about livestock. Uh, we talk about genetics. Uh, we have all sorts of terms and relationships, and particularly the bond to the land, which I think is difficult to understand unless one has truly experienced it. And the fact that many of these operations are many, uh, several generations old, and that that's something that you you have to know, I guess, in essence, to speak the language. So you are trying to train the operators at the crisis hotline in in some of those terms and right. the themes that might arise. H- has that begun the the actual? Uh, call service uh, or it's available anytime yeah. but the organization component of it whereby we have uh, trained them or provided them with the videotapes that will be done here in the next week or two okay so but it's always available yeah uh, are you seeing more foreclosures at this point more farms being forced out of business we're starting to see that a little bit uh Farming right now, of course, it's always been an up and down business, and so you it's a commodity. And so when there's surplus, prices are low. When there's a deficit production, then they're high, and that often hinges on weather. And so consequently, what we're seeing right now is one of those dips. And what are the forces at play in the dip? Help us understand why. Uh, too why. much production, really. Uh, worldwide weather's been good. Uh, genetics of a lot of the crops and are, are, we're producing more than we were. And those, that, of course, drives prices down. That drives prices. There's simply more supply than demand at the moment. And that, that too, shall change. Weather is, you know, an aberration in itself. What crops does that touch? Well, it touches every crop. But primarily right now, the surplus is in the wheat and corn commodities is where we're really seeing it. Now, what happens, too, then is is people quit raising wheat and corn and they'll move into another crop. And then um, then you oversupply that crop. So it's kind of a, hmm. a two-edged sword. But typically right now, it would be the row crops. They're literally half the price they were in 2012 and 13. When farmers give up wheat and corn, what do they what do they tend to plant? Oh, they'll move particularly in the in the dryland and eastern plains area. They'll move into commodities like grain sorghums, proso millets, uh, some of uh, hays, those other those type of commodities. Colorado's a huge millet grower. That's right. Yes, it is very much. So. What about bright spots? Oh, there's always bright spots. Okay, I mean, what are a few can, of those crops? Oh, I mean, we've got some bright spots. Uh, we're seeing. The beef industry's rebounded a little bit again now. Uh, some of the produce crops that they've have them contracted, they're doing okay. I mean, it's there's no it's this is pretty typical. It's just hard on folks when they see a slide like this. Is there something about the farming life that makes it harder to ask for help? Well, there's a great deal of independence and resilience. Uh-huh. I mean, you have to be that way to stand there and watch a hailstorm wipe out a year's worth of work in ten or fifteen minutes. And we've observed that. We experienced that on our farm this summer early. Yeah, this and happened to your son, too, This right? happened to my son, yes. He lost his wheat crop, him and his wife, and oh, about 30 minutes on May 31st, it was gone. And so you have to have an independence and a resilience. But everybody, too, probably uh, family members need somebody to talk to. Uh, they'll recognize sim- symptoms or signs of when somebody's struggling mentally. 
And we'll post the number, obviously, to cprnews.org if you if you would please looking for that. Yeah, absolutely, be greatly appreciated. Um, well, what what do you think uh, is is the long term look here uh, outlook? That is, you've said that farmers have been here before in Colorado. Uh, is there a light on the horizon? Well, I always, um, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm a, I'm a lemonade guy when I get lemons, and all you do is put sugar in it, and you've got something to consume. This, too, shall change in turn. Uh, we're seeing a growing population, and consequently, everybody needs to be fed. So there will continue to be demand. Uh, there's always cycles in the weather worldwide. And so we'll see a rebound. It'll be slow, uh, or it might be quick. You never know. Uh, but it's difficult to realize, too, on occasion, that if you're under financial pressure, it may not be your fault. It probably isn't your fault. Actually, I'd say it's not your fault because you're, there's, there's weather, there's financial pressures across the world, there's interest rate, things that are beyond the farmer's control. What about crop insurance and subsidies, though? Does, don't those support farmers? Don't those make these kinds of times easier? Uh, I'm, they certainly, crop insurance does help. However, typically, uh, if you're fortunate enough, you'll get your money back that you have invested. You certainly don't make any profit. And typically, if you don't have a weather disaster, you don't get crop insurance anyway. You won't get a you won't get paid out. And so consequently, what happens to you then is you're on the open market with it. Oh. And what about subsidies? Could subsidies be contributing to the glut in some of these crops? I don't think so. The structure is completely different in the farm programs now. It's based on an ARC and a PLC, and that's some of that foreign language that you and I don't have time to talk about. Mm. And I'm, they play a much smaller role than they used to. They're more of a price support type thing rather than a, a direct You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Colorado's Agriculture Commissioner. That's Don Brown. Uh, about a new effort to reach out to farmers and ranchers who may be struggling um, in terms of their headspace, their mental state with the pressures of farming and ranching. And uh, those pressures aren't just related to crops and markets. I know that health insurance, for instance, weighs on the minds of Typically, everybody has to pay for their own health insurance. They're not covered by any plan. And, you know, those increases, of course, have eat into the family budget. You got less income and, and cost of production has gone up a great deal. I know in the 80s, uh, you could buy a good-sized tractor that you needed for 50000 Now that tractor costs 350000 We've seen increases in everything. And, and so that, that in itself uh, creates pressures. So the United States is beginning negotiations with Canada and Mexico to change the North American Free Trade Agreement, known as NAFTA. What will you watch most closely from Colorado's vantage point? Well, Colorado exports about 50 percent of its agricultural production. Half of what's grown and raised here. Typically to a large degree, dollars-wise. Okay, we're a large, very large beef state here. And uh, half of that goes to Canada and Mexico. So they're big partners of Colorado agriculture, and we've had good relationships with them in the past. Uh, we spend a lot of time in our marketing department, the Department of Ag, uh, 
working with both of those partners. Is that threatened, that relationship, or, or what? Well, I think there's probably some questions on the, on the federal level and some of the rhetoric. But on the whole, I think everyone has recognized that uh, food has to be purchased, food has to be eaten. And so we're pretty fortunate in the ag side of that. We've been having meetings with the Canadian government and the, and the Mexican government as well, and we're, and we're continually talking. It doesn't sound like you're going into that white-knuckled necessarily. No. Initially, I was real concerned. We were seeing some reluctance on part of particularly the Mexican government. They were seeing purchases and things. I mean, it's always concerned. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to dismiss it, but I'm not as concerned as I once was. Speaking of trade, you're part of a Colorado delegation that's going to Cuba, I think in November? Yes. What markets do you see for Colorado agricultural products there? Well, of course, uh, you know, with the embargoes and that sort of thing, the only real thing you can take into Cuba is food and medical supplies. So we've got the food component. We see a demand for the pinto beans that we raise here, possibly potatoes, possibly beef, uh, basic food items, which uh, they're, they're lacking. I'm not sure I knew Colorado grew pinto beans. We have a lot of pinto beans. And there's a market for those in Cuba. The Dominican Republic, uh, Mexican uh, government buy, purchases them. They're probably our largest buyer of pintos. Farmers uh, rely uh, heavily on immigrant labor. Legal workers come in through special H-2A visas. Uh, President Trump has called for tougher immigration rules. And uh, do you have some sense of how that might impact Colorado farmers? Well, certainly we do have a, a labor issue, in particularly in the produce uh, business and the dairy business and, and other facets, but particularly do, those two. Does that mean in the fields for produce? Well, produce would be in the fields yeah. and dairy would be in the milking yes, barns. Yes, of course. Yeah, right? So, yes. But it's the picking of the produce. It's the harvesting, uh -huh. typically. And, uh, of course, when a commodity is ready, it's ready. I mean, it doesn't have three weeks, four weeks, you can't just go take it up. It has to be harvested now. And weather makes that, of course, extremely variable. So when you need a supplier of available workers, you need them now. And that process has been, uh, H-2A process has been slow and cumbersome in the past. Uh, I think everybody recognizes that. So it needs revision. Uh, where that'll go, who's to say? And I'm in, not in a position to control that. In dairy, what are those jobs that often go unfilled? Well, it typically is that whole process of uh, everywhere from feeding the cows, calving the cows, milking the cows, to oh, any, any job you can name in a dairy. Hmm. So you'd like to see more H-2A workers? I would like to see that system become less cumbersome uh -huh. so it was more practical to use. So when, when they were needed, they would be available. Don Brown, a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it, and uh, I appreciate your time. This is an important issue to me. He is Colorado's Agriculture Commissioner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now, a thriller we couldn't put down. It's about technology that we can't seem to put down. Dead on Arrival is mainly set in Steamboat Springs, and it explores whether things like smartphones will save us or if they'll lead to our demise. Matt Richtel based the book in part on his reporting for The New York Times, where he writes about tech, science, and behavior. I should say that he won the Pulitzer Prize in 2010 for his series on how cell phones distract drivers. And Matt, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. Why set this new thriller in a sleepy ski town for the most part? Well, 
Uh, you remember, uh, remember the, uh, the shining? Oh, sure. And the Broadmoor? Uh, oh, you, the hotel in, the in Estes hotel, Park, The actually. hotel in Estes Park. So, uh. The Stanley. The Stan, oh, the Stanley. The Stanley, yes. The Stanley, thank you. So I needed a Stanley. Um, I spend a lot of time in Steamboat and, um, Steamboat is my Stanley for two reasons. Um, one is, despite my deep affection for it, it's eerie. Ryan. Mm. And here's why it's set in the Yampa Valley. There's a road out going, I can't remember east, north, west, or south. I'm, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm geographically, uh, challenged (laughs) and there's the, and then there's the pass going the other direction. And if you want to set something that can be isolated and terrifying, where better? Ah, the, the inability to escape quickly, I suppose. There's no escape. Looms in the background. I understand that you grew up in Boulder, so this is a state you know well. You know, I couldn't help but think about your book, Dead on Arrival, uh, when news broke out last weekend about the protests in Charlottesville. Yeah. There's a not dissimilar event that hangs over your book all the way through. It's a long-planned political demonstration that could yep. turn violent uh, called the Million Gun March. Yep. Why did you want to write about this constant threat of violence in society? This kind of hum in the background. Well, so um, just to – can I set the stage by just telling your listeners how this begins because it um, it will inform the answer? Well, or sure. should I – Yeah, you know, it, we don't want to give away too much. All right, not too much. <laughs> Listen, a plane lands in steamboat at Hayden Airport and um, it appears uh, upon landing that everyone in the world is dead. And there's an infectious disease specialist on the plane who has to suss it out. And this is the setting for Dead on Arrival. But as I began to write to answer your question directly, it struck me that the backdrop for this story is the unzipping of civility, Um, that there's an enormous amount of hostility. And I can even – I hate to burden a piece of fiction with facts, but I can hit you with enormous facts about the level of partisanship being at historic levels since the Civil War. And um, and I thought that the perfect way to ask the question, is everyone coming undone? Are we all dying in some way? Was to set it against a real backdrop. And that is the epic partisanship we face today. Huh. Uh, and what intrigues you about that? Well, look, um, just to let me just give you a statistic that kind of blows my mind. In 1960, we were asked uh, as a society – the Republicans and Democrats were asked, if you if your son or daughter married someone of the other party, how unhappy would you be? And it was about five percent. And by 2008, it was nearing 30 and 50 percent, depending on your party. And I can only imagine it's escalated. Think about that. You would be livid or unhappy or dissatisfied if someone married someone from the opposite party. It's only escalated. And I find that really intense because what it says to me is that um, by virtue of being in a party, you almost cannot stand the notion that your friend, partner, uh, son, daughter would be with someone else. It's the essence of tribalism. How have we gotten to that point? How have we gotten to a point where we have learned so much in the world and yet the tribalism that we're sinking into is historic? Well, you answer that in part, how have we gotten here, through the lens of your reporting for the New York Times uh, in this book um, with technology. That That is 
potentially divisive. How so? Well, look, in in 2016, on average, I mean, in 2016, we listened collectively to 72.5 billion minutes of news media listened to or watched per week. That was up 16 percent from the year before. This is a theory that runs through the book, and I hate to give too much away, but Here's the way I think about it, and I'll re- I'll try to relate it back to Charlottesville, which is, you know, really the tip of the spear of where things are right now. We have entered a kind of individual reality silo with the media that we that we listen to today. We are reinforced in our views and maybe intensive in, and intensified in our views by virtue of the choices we make with media. And as this infectious disease doctor looks across the land, he starts to wonder, have we perhaps entered a kind of catatonia, a massive, um, you know, individual reality state that both makes us hostile, but even paralyzes us? And I, th- I think we have to ask the real question right now, Ryan, what is happening by virtue of the individual media silos that we have entered? I mean, let me ask you, what do you think? Are we are we becoming more connected through our communications or more isolated? I, I think it's often that we're more connected to some people and yeah. disconnected maybe from others who may view things, the world differently from how we do. And, and in this novel, you put some responsibility for this on tech companies themselves. Uh, I was taken by a description uh, from someone who works at Google, fictionally in the book, uh, a character in your book. Uh, Can you read this bit for us? Yeah. So um, this says, uh, this is quoting someone. He says, the tech industry is in no small part to blame for the the intensity in the world today. We're not idiots. We can see that the pace of media, the onslaught of conflict-centric communication, stoked the flames of hostility. He says, we've had economic challenges in this country, but nothing like hyperinflation and massive unemployment. It's just the media could make it feel that way. The hammering of negative messages, sensationalism, coupled with people feeling keyed up by their interaction with devices, leads to a world fertile for conflict. Um, so, you know, it, you say there the tech industry is in no small part to blame. Um, have you gotten any blowback from the tech industry, which you cover for the times in, in making that point in this novel? No blowback from the industry. And I actually think the industry is wrestling with its own responsibility in one key regard. And I think I can sum up. We've been a little bit in all over the place here, but I want to sum up everything we've said with one word. And the word is attention. And. The tech industry is grappling for our attention. We are grappling for one another's attention. Here I am on your radio seeking attention for this book. And as we have found technology that lets us grapple for attention, we are both shouting, each of us, and having trouble listening. And we are being reinforced in our own views by people who want our attention or finding terrific ways to get at it. So It's almost like we're being hacked. Would you say that? (laughs) (laughs) I'll say it, but I haven't thought about it. Ryan, I think we're being hacked. Um, But let me, I'd have to think about it in this way. We are being played to on the most primitive levels. Our devices are reinforcing a couple of things in us that are so deep and primitive that they go to the core of who we are. And one of them is a desire to feel relevant. Another is a desire 
to have a platform to be heard, and a third is a desire to be reinforced. And so when you play to these primitive needs, these deep, deep primitive needs, what you do is stir up things inside of us that can be coaxed and inflamed in the ways that demagogues have always inflamed us. So you have to ask a question, does the technology behave in a way broadly that demagoguery has in, has has behaved? You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Matt Richtel. His new book, Dead on Arrival, is a novel set in Steamboat Springs. And as you've heard, it dives into all sorts of issues that come up on his beat, science and technology and the behavior associated with them uh, at The New York Times. And what's actually happening in our brains when we pick up the phones? You've talked about how uh, technology is actually playing with something very fundamental in us. Yeah. So our devices are playing to our brains in ways you may not realize um, your phone may, may may not even be what you think it is. I think we tend to think of it as a productivity and an entertainment device. I think the neuroscience would show that it is playing to deep, primitive, even mechanical urges in our brain. And I'll give you a simple uh, example. So, Ryan, if you're a cave person and you're sitting in front of a fire and you get a tap on the shoulder from behind, can you ignore the tap on your shoulder? Uh, I think I would find it very difficult. You would find it difficult. Something in me wants to know what's tapping me. Is it threat? Is it uh, opportunity? Is it someone with a spear? You know, your phone is, when it rings, is a tap on your shoulder from anyone anywhere in the world. In that most basic mechanical sense, you can't ignore it. But I want you to add to that this you know, really increasingly established neuroscience, which is, you know, that feeling, that little thrill you get when you get information on your phone. Does that resonate? Oh, absolutely. I have a very unhealthy relationship (laughs) with my phone. (laughs) So that is uh, you and me both, brother. Um, We need a detox. But what that is on 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 a neurological level is a little burst of dopamine. And you get a little burst of dopamine, a little burst of dopamine. These are pleasure chemicals. And in their absence, you start to feel bored. And so you seek them out more. Let me kind of add that up for you. What that says is that while you think you're using your device to get information you need, to connect with your spouse, your partner, your boss, whatever, you may actually be using it simply to satisfy that constant urge or the, to fill the, abs- the, the boredom. What this book gets into is that it asks, is the lure of all our media, mm-hmm. all the information, all the stimulation, all the no- the novelty, not actually about our need to know, not actually about our need to understand, but more fundamentally about our need for stimulation? What's driving it? Yeah. What's and we, driving it? We, we will put the mask sometimes on it of productivity, but you're saying that... It's really an addictive behavior that's driving it. I I hesitate to use the word addictive because there's a clinical definition, but I'll call it highly compulsive, extremely compelling. Um, That's a conversation unto itself. But look, think about this in the political context we find ourselves in now. We are are, um, listening, 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 consuming, then spitting out in this non-virtuous cycle of information. And I think less and less are we prone or some of us prone to actually think about 
what we're I'm going to give you a crass um, metaphor, but it's almost like we're swallowing and then excreting out what we hear without digesting. And in the process of that um, kind of um, uh, information flow, that sort of massive quick information flow, it may be that we're behaving and acting on information without processing it. Which can be dangerous if you're making political decisions or decisions at the voting booth, I suppose. What we, We've talked about so many of the, the problems here. Yep. Do, you have, do you have suggestions about how you've changed your own media diet or your relationship with technology that might be able to transform this relationship? Yeah, in a, in a, in a few words, I've just taken time away from my device out of recognition that the impulses that drive my relationship to it may not have been what I always thought. But look, I think there's a bigger question, in, and I'll put this under the heading of solutions. I think we think that democracy, the essence of it is transparency. And right now we have more transparency than we could have ever dreamed of, and yet it seems to be driving us into a dark place. Is that a conundrum? Or is it possible that over time, the level of transparency that we have, we'll learn to have a new relationship with it, that we'll learn to accept some things um, as, as those we don't need to react to and accept others as those we do need to react to? You know, it's so often that the information coming at us uh, is described as a fire hose, drinking from a fire hose. And what you're saying is we're going to learn to drink from that fire hose, hopefully. I think we might in the Uh very way that we've learned to choose our foods better and we choose junk food, you know, infrequently. Um, I think it's the very thing with our devices where we'll learn to get the best from this remarkable technology without having it become such a fire hose that it in effect becomes counterproductive and blows us backwards. And indeed, you you do compare our diets, our media diets and our relationship with technology to our our food diets, our food. How do you think we'll learn to do that? It's an optimistic view. I I am an optimist. I think we'll learn to do it because I think we learn. At a core level, we learn. We've learned to eat better after the industrialization of food led very directly to obesity and diabetes, but it's also brought more calories to more people and better diets. We're learning with our devices. We're going to learn to communicate without self-destructing. I think we will learn, and I think it's conversations like this. I should add, I would love, I'm going to be at the Tattered Cover tonight on Colfax. I would love if anybody wants to talk about this to please join us in a conversation about it. Uh, The book is Dead on Arrival. It's the new novel from Matt Richtel of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer surprise a few years back. He's on the beat of science, technology, our interactions with it, our behavior. Uh, So there is obviously a lot of truth woven into this fictional narrative in the book. And again, it starts with an airplane landing in Steamboat Springs. It appears, at least like everyone on the ground, is dead. And uh, it just so happens that there's this doctor on board to help figure out what's going on. He's wrestling with something really fundamental about his role in helping people. And that is whether to invest in patients who don't take care of themselves. Yeah. It's interesting because he, to deal with all of these demons, drinks. Yeah. 
So say more about what he's wrestling with himself. Well, look, I mean, this is drawn from my wife's a doctor and I've gotten to know doctors. And um, this is drawn from some people I've gotten to know who have wrestled with a really hard question. Here they are giving their lives. Uh, you know, they're on call all night and they're stitching people up in the emergency room who are um, shooting one another. They're in drunk driving accidents. And and one guy in particular said to me, he said, look, I I don't know how to help people who seem to be wanting to harm themselves as much as help themselves. And I was really struck by this because it seems a metaphor to me for the razor's edge we find ourselves on right now. We are we are trying to stitch ourselves together as a community, as a country, as individuals. At the same time, we are tearing at ourselves and tearing at others. He is at the heart of this. Do you know what this guy ultimately did, Ryan? He quit doing medicine. He said... I can no longer help people who don't seem to want to help themselves. So here's a doctor on the back of this plane seeing humanity having apparently come undone, maybe even everyone's dead, and he's saying to himself, do I want to help the world or should I let it do to itself what it seems to want to do to itself? In the end, I, I won't give that away. Yeah. Um, I will also say there's a much more fundamental reason he feels this way, which is much more personal, and uh, and I won't give that away we'll either. I won't give that away. That's part of the novel here. Uh, but it's it's really this question of whether we get in our own ways. Do we get in our own ways? No. Yes. Uh, the characters in your book have some real insights, I think, into human psychology. Um, they tend to figure out each other's motivations and manipulate each other. That was a bit of a surprise to me because they live in such a technology addicted world. I didn't expect them to have that like emotional intelligence. What what are you saying about those those folks? Well, first of all, I I, I will say I think we have enormous emotional intelligence. I think we're going to figure our way out of this. But the setting winds up as this. Um, they're on this plane, a handful of people, and it appears that everyone outside is dead. And I took this opportunity with this handful of people to let them behave as it appears to me we are behaving much more broadly in a kind of Lord of the Flies-like way. Ah. Now, look, here's the thing. I won't dispute that we have some dark impulses as human beings, and I won't dispute we have some better angels. And the question among this little group left alive on this plane is what will rise to the surface, our better angels or our darker selves? It's the very question being played out in society, and the reason the book kind of explores this or exploits this, or the mechanism it finds, is it asks, does technology help us find our better angels? Or is it stimulating darkness inside of us that will overtake all the work we've done over millennia to try to heal and better and inform and improve? Do you have to go into that darkness a bit before you can find the light? I would say Undoubtedly. And again, I, I should I should have put this preface before anything else. Not only am I taking off my um, New York Times hat uh -huh. well, during this interview because I speak as a fiction writer, but I am burning it and sitting on it and eating my New York Times hat because I, I speak to you here from a fiction writer's perspective. It is my own belief that you do go to these dark places before you learn. I hesitate to call it rock bottom because that's so cliched and I hope we don't have to get there. But look, Charlottesville is an incredibly dark place. 
We have been in these places before. I think what's so remarkable about the partisanship conversation that began where we are is we've been through Vietnam. We've been through civil rights marches. We've been through darker places. So what I find particularly interesting is, and we've bounced back from those places. Um, The question is, what, what is it that makes this place so dark? And how will we bounce out? intriguing to figure out. And we're going to have to figure it out with smartphones, Matt. Thank you for for being with us. That's Matt Richtel. He writes about science and technology for The New York Times. His new novel is Dead on Arrival. He'll be at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax in Denver tonight. You can read the prologue to Dead on Arrival at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. (laughs) 